Welcome, believers. Welcome and praise God for a message in music, the Word of God in music. And I praise the Lord for you. And again, this is an opportunity just to be with believers for the Lord Jesus. So I want you, as you look at this, I want you to remember what happened not too many weeks ago. It was on the island volcano of Tonga, place you'd love to go, except at this time, where the most powerful explosion had happened ever prior to, or actually since 1100. It was so powerful that the explosion was heard in Alaska, and it even caused an oil spill in Peru. So metaphorically, everyone really wants power to be able to change things, to be able to do things. You know, you and I would like power to be able to change politics, to change the economy, change the military, change science, change medicine, the environment, change terror, change religion, relationships, maybe even the people near us. You know, and we plea for power, and this plea to change problems and things around us, but it seems like there's never enough power. It seems like there's never enough for what we would like to see change. Well, I want to tell you that God hears this plea, and He heard this throughout time in eternity past, and He answers it by giving us, and this world, I would say, the power of the Holy Spirit, the gift who is the power and the Spirit of God. So the epicenter, just like the Tonga earthquake or volcano explosion, the power and the epicenter of this power is the Spirit of God in the book of Acts, the first chapter. And I'd like to ask you to turn there with me to the first book of Acts, the first chapter of Acts, excuse me, Acts chapter 1, because the epicenter of the power of God is in verse 8. And listen with me as I read. But you, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses. So the epicenter of the most powerful gift given to the world and to us is in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, which is how God the Holy Spirit changes the world and changes then as well as now. And Acts is actually a living paradigm of all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Acts starts by saying, and how the Spirit of God changes us, the church, and changes this world. So the key takeaway of what I want you to learn and what we're going to look at this morning is in Acts chapter 1. It is, and He is, the gift of the Holy Spirit. So I ask you a question. Well, who is the Holy Spirit? And we have theologians here, women and men who have studied the Scriptures. But I want to go over a brief fact check who the Holy Spirit is. And I want to say, first off, He is fully God. The Holy Spirit, the gift of power, is not 
the power of money, of possessions, of position, protection, or even pop religious ecstasy. He is not a commodity. He is not enhancement for your life. He is not a feeling, and he is not third in importance. He is fully God. He creates, he moves scripture writers, he speaks, he trains, he convicts, he comforts, he grieves, he intercedes, he testifies, he leads, he dwells in a believer, and get this, he is throughout eternity future. This is who the Holy Spirit is. He is fully God as the Father and the Son. Second point, He is God the only. There is no other God but the one triune God revealed in the Old Testament and New Testament scriptures. He is only God. Third, He is God the person. He lives in us. That God lives in us had never, ever been spoken of very clearly before until Jesus spoke concerning him living in us. And he actually said specifically, he will live with you and he will be in you, just as Christ and just as the Father are in you. Have you thought about why the Holy Spirit is in us How often have you thought about the times when you needed counsel, comfort, correction, conviction, connection, creative help, changing and challenge? The answer really is all the time. So the Holy Spirit is the person of God in you. And those who accept Christ receive the hope and the help, and the home of God living in us. And I want you to notice that this is more than you have ever heard before in the Scripture. As a matter of fact, this is the story of mythology, the story of fantasies, that God could actually live inside of a person. And I don't want you to yawn about this, but I want you to yearn to learn about this Holy Spirit. Awe and marvel is how we should respond, that the Holy Spirit, the power, the person lives in us. So again, the key takeaway today is this, the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we're looking at Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, and it explains that we must respond to the gift by obeying two commands, by faith obedience. The power of the Holy Spirit, if we obey these commands, changes not only us, but changes the world around us. And these are the two commands. The first command, verses 1 through 7, is this. Do not go, but wait. And the second command is, do not wait but go. And it seems like these are just complete opposites. But in fact, as we look at the scripture, you'll see this is exactly what the scripture is teaching us. So the first command, do not go. 
But wait, listen. Listen as the Scripture speaks in verse 4. And on on one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you have heard me speak about. Now ask yourselves a question. Why would he have wanted them to wait if he wanted them to act in faith obedience? There are two reasons, and the first reason is this. The power, verses 1 through 5, the power of the Holy Spirit is displayed by waiting in prayer. We know Jesus meant this because, and the disciples got it, because in verse 14, we read that they were joined together constantly in prayer. Now, Jesus did not command them to wait because he wanted them to be at risk, because they were at great risk. They had just crucified, that people had just crucified their Savior. They were hunting for all the others in order to round up the other suspects and as well deal with them. They were at great risk, but Jesus didn't want them to wait and be at great risk. He did not want them to wait and deny the comfort of their hometown in Galilee's shores. Rather, he wanted them to wait, not because he wanted them to be frustrated because they wanted to talk about the resurrection, but he instead wanted them to wait at this command to wait in prayer. Now, why was the command to wait? Why was it? Well, waiting was the catalyst, but prayer was what God wanted. The apostles and the disciples had the exuberance of the resurrection behind them. It had just happened. The presence of Christ was still with them for almost 40 days. But they saw hints that he was leaving soon. And Christ knew that they needed more assurance, comfort, energy, hope, because of what was about to happen. And he wanted them to seek what was going to happen Next, he wanted them, he wants us. Remember, the book of Acts is a paradigm for the church today, and he wants us to pray. So we feel the same. Sometimes in those uncertain periods of life, God says, don't go, wait, wait and pray. So this is why the command, don't go, but wait was for the power of the Spirit of God in prayer to come upon them. It applies not only to them, but to us as well. We're not waiting for the Spirit to come today. He comes and has come to anyone who has received Christ as Savior. But rather, He is commanding the church then and today to wait because He is the one who answers prayer in power. You know, sometimes we need to remember that we can't force God to answer prayer. We can't think up and plan all of the things that we want to make happen and therefore make, as it were, our own prayers answered. But rather, God the Spirit says, I answer prayer, wait and pray. I have to ask myself, Am I 
willing to pray together with others, to confess. Sometimes my unwillingness to pray and perhaps even us here to say that we are willing to wait on the Holy Spirit for His guidance, to wait on His will through the Word. Are we willing to wait in prayer? For we know that there is power of the Holy Spirit in prayer. Well, there's a second reason for why he wanted them to wait. He wanted them to wait, verses 6 through 7, by the power of the Holy Spirit that is displayed in waiting on others. Disciples sensed that Jesus was coming, his time was coming to a close, and the era with the Savior was about to be over with his physical presence. And they asked him this question, Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom now to Israel? He answered, he said, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons. Jesus meant not now. Why would he have said that? Because he wanted many others in Kyle. As we who we don't know, those people, he said to them as well as to us, those Samaritans and to the uttermost parts of the earth. We know the Holy Spirit also wants us to wait on many because as we look later on in the book of Acts, we see how many others came to faith in Christ, such as those who were called Cretans and Arabs, clearly non-Jews. Verse 11. So the power of the Holy Spirit is displayed also by waiting on others. God shows in Acts how patient He is. And He has shown in this the paradigm for the church today. How patient He continues to be with others. Others coming to Christ because we even read later in the scripture how Peter said that he's not willing to not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Family waiting on others is how the power of the Holy Spirit is displayed in Acts and how it is displayed today because he wants others to come to him and come to repentance. He wants the power of the Spirit displayed in us in this fashion Are we willing to wait on others as the Spirit does? So these two actions, willing to wait in prayer and willing to wait on others, display the power of the Holy Spirit then as well as today. So I have to ask, if Jesus commanded, do not go, but wait, then what should we do? Should we not relearn to wait in prayer, to wait on others, as Christ instructed the church? If Acts is a living paradigm for the church today and changing the church and the world, then should we not also wait in prayer? Did you know that this is why Jesus taught his disciples to pray? He didn't teach them how to preach. He didn't teach them how to lead. He didn't teach them how to administer, although he exampled, but he did teach them to pray. So 
Acts explains that when we respond in faith obedience, the power of the Holy Spirit changes us and people for eternity. That's why he said, wait. So the first command, do not go, but wait, was intentional on the part of God through the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so as a church, let's agree to meet in prayer. Let's agree to pray for not only for those who we need to, to invite to Christ, but also to call on the Lord. Let's, even now, in our chairs, and I'm going to ask us to turn to the people before or behind you and just meet for a couple of minutes of prayer to pray about these two things, to wait on God and to wait on others. And so if you would turn to each other, just one or two people for a couple of minutes, just pray with each other. Let's pray right now. If you can't turn me on. Lord, I pray you would I, I can't pray. It's too loud. Do you mind praying? Amen. So the first command, do not go, but wait. But let's look at the second command in verses 8 through 11. These verses explain that command, do not wait, but go. It's interesting how when the scripture was written and how the Lord dealt with those disciples, he told them to pause and they went through a period of pause just as you prayed right now. And hopefully we'll continue this. But then he said, but now I have a mission for you. So verses 8 through 11. And the key takeaway, as I said this morning, is the gift of the Holy Spirit. And when we respond by faith obedience, the power of the Holy Spirit changes us and people around us. So listen again to verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. 
The scripture is saying that there is not only the requirement to wait in prayer, but the command to go. And you can notice that by seeing some of the action verbs that are addressed here. For example, in verse 9, after he said this, he was immediately taken up. Verse 10, and they were looking when suddenly two men appeared. And then in verse 11, those two men asked, men, why are you standing here? And clearly the emphasis of what the scripture is saying and what has been happening since the Lord was taken up in the ascension was go now. You know, the ascension is important. But the emphasis of what the scripture is writing here is this command, go now in the power of the Spirit as my witnesses. And there are two facets of being witnesses. First off, it's being my witness. And then secondly, being resurrection witnesses. So look, how is it that the power of the Spirit is displayed by being my witnesses? First, and I think it's obvious, but we need to state it, it is by being His witness. Literally, a witness of me or a witness to me. In other words, everything that we witness about is for Jesus. And it's to Jesus. And it's about Jesus. Everything is for Him and to Him. And when we speak, we speak of Jesus not ourselves, not others' thoughts, not others' opinions, but rather about Jesus Christ. So I'm not saying that we cannot speak our testimony when we are witnessing or when we're a witness. I'm not saying that we can't tell about our experiences or thoughts, and we can. And people are moved when we explain how we came to faith in Christ. However, our emphasis, and the emphasis of what the Scripture is saying is that we must say what He says, who He is, how He saves, and how we are His witnesses. But I want to add that second, being my witness also means that there are costs. If you read through the book of Acts, you'll see immediately how there was persecution, how there was trouble, how there was difficulty. There were costs to being my witnesses. Did you know the word witness is the same word as martyr? I'm not saying this to try to scare us, but the word meant those who were persecuted or later on even died for their faith like Christ. But if you have been hurt, poorly treated, rejected, or worse, for your faith in Christ, you know that there are costs to being my witness. And the costs require boldness for Christ. It's interesting that as we look through the scripture, we see example after example of bold witnesses for Christ. Like the future witnesses in Revelation chapter 11, verses 3 through 7, and we see how not only they paid costs, but they were bold in the process. So listen, 
as I read Revelation 3, verses, or 11, 3 through 7, and where the Lord himself is saying, and I will appoint my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days, clothed in sackcloth. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands, and they stand before the Lord of the earth. They have power to shut up the heavens during the time that they are prophesying, and they have power to turn water into blood and strike the earth with every kind of plague. Now, when they are finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and will overpower and kill them. You see, going in the power of the Spirit means to be my witness. That is, a witness to and of and for Christ. But it also means that there may be costs. And those costs also can be displayed in boldness for Christ. So secondly, going in the power of the Spirit means going as a resurrection witness. And Acts points out that the witnesses in the Scripture were witnesses of the death, burial, resurrection of Christ and eternal life in Christ. And it's interesting because we often speak of how he gives hope and he heals and he helps, which is good. And yet the emphasis in Acts, again, the paradigm for the church today, is primarily to be a witness of the resurrection of Christ and the fact of eternal life. It's a fact because when you have a resurrection that can be proven, then you have the sequential or the consequent eternal life that can be banked on. You know, eternal life sometimes is one of those things that we tend to shy away from. It's almost like the elephant in the room. People want to know the answer to the question. Is there really proof? Is there really a resurrection? Is there really hope of eternal life? And the scripture says, yes, there is proof. You know, did you notice that Acts chapter 1 verse 3 starts by saying it this way? After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave them many infallible, maybe your version says convincing, proofs that he was alive. So what makes an infallible proof? The word proof really means an unmovable marker, an unmovable, like a survey stake that can be driven into the ground to prove that this is the legal property line. And that marker is provable what are clearly first eternal life. Now, Christ, when he gave the Holy Spirit, we, he said, we are his witnesses. Not miracles, not angels, not even preaching. We are that marker of proof of eternal life. So he tied, the Lord himself tied all of the success of his mission on the Holy Spirit that he put inside of us. And have you ever seen how throughout all of our failings and our fumblings and our faults, 
that the Holy Spirit comes back again and again and witnesses through us and through others the hope of eternal life in Christ, you and I may fail repeatedly. Yet as we obey the Spirit, He does it again and again, and He uses us to testify to someone the hope and the fact of eternal life. It was just recently that I overheard a wounded veteran talking to another Christian soldier and saying that you over this time have been persisting and persisting, telling me about faith in Christ and about eternal life. And now I am listening. Note, we are not saying that we are witnesses because we're like salesmen who happen to believe in the product and we try to convince others that we believe in the product. Rather, we are saying that we, we are witnesses because the Spirit inside, the Spirit who lives in us is testifying. And even though I fail or you fail, the Spirit of God does not fail. We are witnesses. So I want to tell you as well that we are not only the markers of proof because we are God's witnesses, but we stand among thousands and thousands of others throughout centuries and centuries who have credibility. Why? Credibility because we have everything to lose if there is no eternal life. But we have everything to gain if there is eternal life. So don't diminish the power of the Spirit inside of you when he says we are markers of the proof of eternal life. That's why we speak of him. And God has no other plan, by the way, friends. He has no plan B. There's no backup story. He will not fail. We are witnesses and markers of the resurrection. And I would say, secondly, there are those witness statements. The witness statements, and I point you back to the scripture, that are markers of the proof of the hope of the resurrection and the fact of eternal life. Did you know that U.S. case law, U.S. code law, world common law, all state that witness statements are the most infallible proof in a court for establishing facts. Throughout time, the two witness rule has never changed. That two witnesses can testify to a matter and it can be established and proven. It is then a fact. Well, in the same way, witness statements in the Bible, some not in the Bible, prove the fact of the resurrection the fact of eternal life in Christ. I want you to note this. We are witnesses and the statements are witnesses. That there are hundreds of witness statements as well that prove the fact. For example, there have been more than 10, at least 10 events in the scripture by followers of Christ that testify of seeing the resurrected Christ. Witness statements by those who saw Jesus alive after his brutal crucifixion. 
Women, men, mothers, brothers, disciples, those on the road, those on the mountain, those cowering in upper rooms, those hiding, no less than 500 at one time saw the living Christ. You would expect, some would say, you'd expect followers to say this. But it was dumb and even dangerous to testify in a witness statement of something that could be disproven, but never was disproven, or that they would even die for. But no, these witness statements stand. Secondly, there are multiple statements by legal experts in the Bible, but not followers of Christ. For example, governors, kings, lawyers, and even Caesar himself said, Caesar himself testified of the resurrection. And then third, multiple statements, many statements by legal contemporaries not in the Bible and not followers of Christ. People who were even disinterested. For example, Emperor Claudius or archaeological finds like the Nazareth inscription, Josephus, Tacitus, Pliny II, Lucian, and even the Jewish Babylonian Talmud all testify, all refer to the resurrection. Witness statements, your witness statement has validity. There are literally hundreds of statements of the resurrection and the fact of eternal life. More witnesses saw Jesus Christ alive and testified of that than of the inauguration of George Washington in 1793. There were only 100 people there. Or of just down the road, Thomas Stone, who signed the Declaration of Independence because there were only about 50 there. More witnesses testify to the validity, and I say this clearly, not just the resurrection, but that eternal life is available to all who turn to him. So the Holy Spirit says we are resurrection witnesses the power of the Holy Spirit is that we are witnesses, but we have to ask ourselves, are we convinced that we must go and point people to the hope of the resurrection and eternal life? You know, the key takeaway, as I said before, the epicenter of everything for the church started in chapter 1, verse 8. For the change of our lives and of the world relies on this one person, God, the Holy Spirit, the gift working in us through faith obedience for these two commands. Wait. Don't go. Pray. Continue to pray. Wait in prayer and wait on others. And then secondly, go. Go as my witnesses. Go as resurrection witnesses. Waiting displays the power of the Spirit in humbling ourselves in prayer and service. Going displays the power of the Spirit in mobilizing ourselves to be his resurrection witnesses. Are we willing? Are we ready to wait on God 
as never before? Are we ready to go as never have been, has been dared before? There's no other plan, friends. There's no other God. There's no other church. There's no other truth than the Word of God. And there's no other answers than these for this confusing and corrupted era. But rather, we can wait and we can go. So God in heaven, I ask you that you, in confirming your word, not mine, your kingdom, not ours, that you would establish by faith your hearts, in our hearts, your will for this church, this church universal, and for those who we wait in prayer, as well as to those to whom we go. And Lord Jesus, I ask this in your precious, holy name, and all answer by saying,